0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now, your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farmer.
1: Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 110 and i am nathan gilmore i'm an assistant professor of english at emmanuel college in franklin springs georgia and i'm joined this fine morning by a friend and colleague in the english department there danny anderson danny how are you doing this morning i'm doing pretty well and i'm joined as well from the great white north by the superstar of the christian humanist podcast you know him you love him michael farmer michael how are you doing
0: pretty good why am i the superstar
1: uh, because I'm doing the intro and I made it up on the spot.
0: Gotcha. I always think of you as the superstar because you blog eight times as much as everybody else.
1: <laughs> well, you know, that, that that's the blog. That's not the podcast. So uh, we did get an email about uh, episode number 108. Uh, this semester, we're pretty much releasing a new episode just an hour before we record the new one. So the feedback will always be a couple episodes back. Uh, this is from Alexander Anderson Michael would you like to talk about it for a moment
0: yeah he uh, he thanks us for the podcast but he, he also addresses the Millennials episode in particular and I think I guess that's the Generations episode is what we called it on iTunes He says, I was prompted to respond not to something you guys said in the millennial episode, but to something that wasn't discussed from the Rachel Held Evans piece. I couldn't stand the piece. It stunk too much of the go with the fashion or the ship will sink mentality that will never fail to get on my nerves. But as a millennial, the part where she said that many millennials are drawn to more traditional liturgies, more high church smells and bells and such, really resonated with me. You see, I'm a Catholic, and before I graduated college just over a year ago, I was very involved in the Catholic student community at the school I went to. While I was there, there was a very noticeable and sometimes even hostile generation gap. Often, often, this involved the students asking for the liturgy to follow more closely the norms of the Roman missile, M-I-S-S-A-L, not missile, or for an expanded or any use of Latin or for some incense or something of the sort. Even though many of the suggestions should be, could be shown to have almost universal support among the students, the process often ended by a request getting rebuffed by the mostly baby-boomer staff. There were a number of broad changes while I was there, but they were almost all student-led, with either almost no support by staff or it being actively discouraged by the staff. I would differ, however, with Held Evans in that the students that were involved in the church were almost all conservative on issues like abortion and gay marriage. Our conservatism on those issues also drove a wedge between us and some of the staff. Although many of them also react against consumerism and have misgivings about capitalism, although not many have gone as far as I have and joined the ranks of the pseudo-Marxists, as someone who in my interfaith travels has conversed with many an atheist or Mormon or deist and even some Calvinist. My thought whenever I met a Calvinist was the same as when I met full-blown Marxists. They still make those, but I digress. <laughs> <laughs> I found that, if anything, my own generation tends to take metaphysical beliefs a lot more seriously than their predecessors. Maybe 9-11 has something to do with that. I'd say our generation takes metaphysical beliefs a lot more seriously than their predecessors or not seriously at all.
1: Yeah, that makes some sense. That makes some sense.
0: Which I, I guess kind of gets at what we were saying about the uh, decline of the church in the, in, the, in America maybe not being the worst thing in the world.
1: Right, right. And that's, and you know, I, I actually uh, bounced that idea off of a friend of mine, Jeff Wright, who uh, blogs over at com and also writes for The Clash Daily. But uh, yeah, he said that, you know, he finds it appealing somewhat, but he still wants to be a... Conservative activist. so <laughs> I hey, I'm not going to keep him from that. A uh, little bit of uh, other listener feedback, Michael. Uh, first of all, uh, Michael Barry on Facebook uh, posed the question: Does Emmanuel College know that I am setting up a quasi-Anabaptist Marxist cell on campus? Uh, <laughs> you've blown you my you, you've blown my cover, Barry. You've blown my cover. <laughs> uh and also i just want to give a a quick thank you to isabel air i'm going to guess that's how you pronounce her last name because it's spelled like jane Eyre. uh she has been listening through the podcast apparently she is in the uh sort of upper 60s lower 70s range and she has actually caught a couple episodes that didn't migrate well uh so thank you isabel we now have as far as i know a full catalog thank to thanks to your efforts
0: Thank thank you, Isabel, and Happy New Year 2016 when you finally get around to this one.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Nice. Uh, One more thing before we get to today's subject matter. I want to encourage our listeners again to get on iTunes and subscribe to Christian Humanist Profiles. It is our new podcast. Uh, We won't be doing it every week like we do our flagship podcast. Uh, However, uh, Michael's interview in the first one is very, very good. Uh, mine will probably mediocre that'll probably post as the second one, but then David Grubbs will probably do a knockdown one as the third episode, which I'm not going to announce now. Instead, I'll just let the tension build. So with all of that, uh, front matter out of the way, gentlemen, uh, today I am pretty much going to be, uh, the host more than the moderator, because I'm going to let you guys talk about something that you know, and I'm going to learn from you as you go about it. Uh, Today we're talking about Jewish American novels. Uh, This is something that has appeared in both the dissertation of Michael Farmer and the dissertation of Danny Anderson. Uh, And it is a genre that we really haven't talked about much because Michael's been alone on his little American island. We fixed that problem for a month or so. And so, guys, I'm going to let you go to town here. So, Michael, to lead off, I'm going to steal something uh, that I read in your dissertation Uh, and I'm going to ask you to expand on it. Uh, You say that after World War II, uh, Jews became in some ways the sort of all-American ethnicity, Uh, and certainly in the post-war years you can see Jewish influence on the stage and on the screen and in novels and in science and all sorts of areas of American culture. Uh, What about those post-war years among the East Coast Jews and in America more generally made the Jewish literary scene explode the way that it did?
0: I always like to talk about Jewishness when I explain to my students the mutability, shall we say, of race in America, because the the truth is, it is a relatively recent phenomenon that Jews in America were considered white. And by the way, I I should we all just agree to use the word Jew, even though it, it, it occasionally has negative connotations? I don't know of a better way to put it.
2: Um... Sure, I I can't think of it. Like, what would be the other options?
0: Right, uh, Jew, Jew, Jewish person.
2: Uh, no, I think Jew and Jews are. Yeah, I think that's uh, how we right. would say yeah. it. And
1: yeah. I, I, I can't promise any kind of linguistic discipline, but I'll try.
0: Okay. I I just uh, I just want to make it clear that we're not being anti-Semitic. I, that, that, that that's a complicated word. Anyway, um, so. The, the, Jews in America were not considered white until well after the the Second World War. They were they were. I, I always tell the students to think about it a little bit the way we think about Latinos today. So so they were this kind of, uh, I guess, technically white minority, but not really. So you get a large influx of Jewish immigrants in the thirties and forties in, into America for rather obvious reasons given what's going on in Europe and at first they're not welcomed and then after World War II for a variety of reasons um, they they become well assimilated is probably the best word for it although it's 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 not as though they completely lose Jewish culture It, it it's more like American culture becomes a little bit more Jewish uh, at the same time that the the children of these immigrants are letting go of a little bit of Jewish culture. I don't remember specifically saying that they become, in some sense, the face of America, but that's probably true. I mean, especially the face of intellectual America. I mean, if you, if you look around in the '50s and '60s, the the majority of heavy hitting public intellectuals are going to be Jewish, and especially, and I know Danny can talk about this even better than I can. the The, the New York intellectual school is heavily, heavily Jewish. Sure.
2: Yes. Um, was that a, a handoff? No, it was a handoff. Uh, I botched it. I'm sorry. It's okay. um, <laughs> uh, yes. And I, I do think that um, if you, uh, that's a, a perfect place to begin. And I think that what one of the factors that I think go into this is because it was such a, a, a highly. Uh, concentrated community of immigrants and, and children of immigrants, I think that that influence really cascades throughout the ages like and really being felt even still today, um, the influence of the immigration. And I think that one of the ways in which those immigrants were able to achieve American-ness, American identity status as Americans is through education. And this became a, 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 a highly... Um, Influential and, and major part of the Jewish American experience was achievement in education and I think that you have uh, in the on the cusp of that you have these great artists that that sort of come out of this uh, liberal arts tradition that um, know you know Shakespeare through i mean they're just sort of these these great sort of uh, men of letters and men and women of letters that come out of this um, uh, milieu of uh, of immigration uh, all that are is highly concentrated in a very tight, um, geographic space in the lower East side of Manhattan. And I think that when you have, um, uh, you're talking about the New York intellectuals, this is a, uh, that tightness of that intellectual community, uh, they sort of, uh, uh, kind of oriented themselves through the relationship with magazines, so like the partisan review, um, and later commentary. And, and I think that, uh, that, uh, Sharing that sort of intellectual community really kind of led to this explosion and and then also When you talk about stage and screen as well I mean, there's a great tradition of Yiddish theater that very nicely translated through people like groups like the Marx Brothers um, most notably I think uh, to American mainstream entertainment and and so through these sorts of avenues um, these kind of uh, specific uh, elements of the Jewish American experience specifically uh, i think you have the the means for this great explosion that nathan has described
1: yeah michael i, I don't remember if you used that phrase in your dissertation but I, I that's the sense i got from the jewish american novel chapters of your dissertation that that's the origin of that but I, yeah i mean and you know of course one of the things that i i didn't ask about in the initial show notes just because i wasn't sure how tentative this was, and I didn't have time to research it, frankly. Uh, Is this also the era where uh, Irving Kristol sort of becomes the center of that sort of post-Trotskyite ex-communist group that, you know, sort of
2: becomes so American that it hurts? I wouldn't. I mean, he's in that group for sure. Uh, Okay, all right, all right. I wouldn't necessarily think of him as the center of it. I mean, I more think of people like Irving Howe as sort of the, the kind of, intellectual center and lionel trilling on, on the other end is a more kind of detached um more focused on literature
0: and, um, and all the uh, all the new york intellectuals are ex-marxist right
2: oh sure yeah yeah they yeah, all, yeah partisan review began as a anti-stalinist um socialist uh like political magazine that that saw the value of arts and letters as a means of political engagement and so that's where you have this really they don't make distinctions they're like right alongside um issue of the day sort of uh uh articles you have reviews of new books and, and things like that and so yeah For okay. golden age oh, oh it's it's beautiful i loved and i love to read those old magazines it's great
0: did you hear that dissent and commentary are merging <laughs> they're going to be called dysentery
2: <laughs> oh
0: that's, that's the that's Woody a, allen line yeah that's pretty much franny <laughs> hall yes <laughs>
2: You know, and one thing, uh, one last sort of thing that's just occurring to me about this issue is about the sort of all americanness of this specific ethnicity, mm-hmm. and in the kind of general field of multicultural studies, Jewish-American fiction has a really kind of strange place because there seems to have been so much success in assimilating that it often doesn't get almost counted as a uh, multi-ethnic literature. Um, it's almost yeah. so American that many people don't even consider it alongside African-American or uh, Chicano or anything else like oh, that. Oh,
0: interesting, interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and, it, it, they're, I, I would say both in the academy and outside, they're considered much more of a piece with Italians or, or Irish-Americans yes. than, than yeah. with those other minority groups.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and it's fascinating, too, and I mean, this is completely off the off the beaten track, so we'll get back to the show notes here in a minute, but it, it also occurs to me that in those post-war years, you also have a sort of renaissance of American Catholic intellectual activity. Uh, you know, if you think of figures like, you know, William Buckley and, uh, well, I mean, Flannery O'Connor that, that we've talked about recently, you know, I mean, so it's... It's really fascinating that, you know, post-World War II, Jews and Catholics, you know, two groups who, as you guys just noted, I mean, were sort of considered at the very least suspicious and maybe even un-American, suddenly become, you know, the big intellectual powers, you know, to the point where now, as we record this, you know, the United States Supreme Court uh, doesn't have a Protestant on it. Mm.
2: That's the power of the margins that we were talking about last week, eh?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, at any rate, Danny, let me get back on track so that we don't wander completely away from what what I gave you guys for notes. Uh, as you both know, I'm not all that well-versed in novels generally. I mainly teach those centuries before they got invented. Uh, so I'm going to try to make a comparison to philosophy, a field where I've got a little bit more background. So, Danny, in the philosoph- in philosophy the phrase Jewish philosopher happens kind of on a spectrum. Uh, Most folks would say that the medieval philosopher Maimonides is definitely a Jewish philosopher. Uh, Martin Buber is probably a Jewish philosopher. Uh, Baruch Spinoza might be. And by the time you get to someone like Jacques Derrida, uh, usually people don't think of him first and foremost as a Jewish philosopher. Uh, So is there a similar continuum for... Jewish-American novels, or does that category pretty much include
2: all American novels written by ethnic Jews? Um, well, I would definitely say no to that second half of that um, statement. But uh, it's it's a tricky question, and it, and it's sort of one of those categories that we need and yet can never fully define uh, sort of you have to have this category on some level
1: and thus Danny Knowing... anderson sums up the christian humanist podcast yeah, true.
0: <laughs> that, that's true uh, that's that's on our that's on our christian humans podcast family crest okay. <laughs> <laughs> we need categories but cannot define them
2: yeah well i mean i think that's exactly what's going on here and, and it's important to know that that many prominent artists reject the 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 category for themselves people I think it, uh like certainly Saul Bellow I think has said this and, and and Philip Roth um talk of themselves as American writers and the Jewishness is just sort of not incidental but their own kind of particular experience that happens to provide the material for their for their art um, and so I think that people have made statements kind of questioning um this category um but I think like I said, it's an age-old question. There's a, a famous book by. It's called "What Is Jewish Literature." It's a collection of essays edited by um, uh, someone named uh, Hannah Worth nesher Is her name? And uh, and in her introduction, she talks about this question like persisting, and so it gave rise to this really remarkable collection of essays. People like Cynthia Ozick and and Saul Bellow also um, have uh, essays in this, and. Uh, so she talks about the different ways that people have tried to categorize uh ethnic literature or ge- this particular kind of ethnic literature throughout the years and so uh and and then sort of talking about the uh unsuitableness of each of these categories because they're always sort of exceptions i mean you could talk about ethnicity just like genetics right and that doesn't really hold when you talk about someone like say uh For the most part, Dr. O is a a Jewish man, but he doesn't typically get lumped into the category in the way that, say, Philip Roth does. And 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 then you have uh, uh, I
1: I first found out that Dr. O was Jewish researching this episode.
2: Ah yes, yeah, <laughs> right. It's, it doesn't jump out. Isaac Asimov, another one, right? And so this isn't someone who you think of is fitting into the the kind of uh, the project of Jewish American literature. Um, so ethnicity, kind of helps on some level, but falls short on another level. Um, Irving Howe, uh, interestingly enough, he, uh, back in the, I believe, 60s, edited this uh, collection of Jewish-American uh, short fiction. And in his introduction, he actually categorizes it as a uh, a regional literature uh, in making the comparison straight up with Southern literature. And, and the reason is, for him, the, uh, the whole uh, body of work is oriented around the notion of the immigrant experience and that's what makes Jewish American fiction and he famously predicted that it was over then and this is in the 60s and of course it, it was really only kind of beginning at that point and so he was famously wrong about that but um, uh, the immigrant experience being one of these things language there's a, a one of the great uh, Jewish American novels ever written is this great tome called Call It Sleep by Henry Roth um, that it's a great book, and and it's uh, completely a, a Faulkneresque exploration of of language. It's just the explosion of language, um, and uh, in this in this book, you could talk about the influence of Yiddish as defining um, the Jewish American experience. Um, and then you have which is which is very interesting
0: because it it very much limits what's allowed to be called the Jewish American experience if you if you bring Yiddish into it that much because of there's what three major groups of Jews, and only one of them speak Yiddish? Yes. It, yes. it, it, is, it assumes that the Jewish-American experience is the Ashkenazi American yes. experience.
2: That's a good point, and then there's this whole Sephardic tradition that, that is sort of um, gets kind of lost in this, so that's absolutely true, and so you have these other sort of cultural things. Uh, recently, there's a real, book real out... Real quick,
1: guys, just for our listeners who aren't familiar with this terminology you're slinging around, Sephardic Jews are generally those whose ancestry traces back to the Netherlands, and then before that, Spain. Uh, Ashkenazic tend to be those who are Eastern European in their roots. Is that right? And
0: there's a third group, too. Uh, All right, go ahead. But I can't remember what it what's called. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I those are the them. only
1: two I'm familiar with, so I, I was I was pleased to know that there was a third group, but now oh. I don't know what it is. So anyway, go, go ahead, guys. Keep rolling.
0: Mizrahi is the third.
2: Right, and so... Uh, recently there's this, uh, a, a book out that's actually much more recent than what is Jewish literature um, that takes up the same question by someone named Dan Miran. And and he, he sort of comes up with this label and he's much more uh, interested in kind of uh, the Hebrew language kind of, of Jewishness, uh, of Jewish literature. But um, he has uh, developed this kind of term called the, something like the the modern Jewish uh, literary complex, or something like that, sort of like the industrial, you know, military-industrial complex, where you have these sort of uh, intersections of all these things that sometimes are useful and sometimes are not. And so it's it's a an attempt at having a little more supple way of answering this question, which is as like we talked about at the beginning, uh, both completely uh, useless and utterly essential. <laughs>
1: Michael, is there anything you'd add to that?
0: No, I don't think so.
1: All right. Uh, well, and then we're going to get to the question that I, you know, again, as someone who's not really well-versed in this, I just figured this has got to be part of the picture. So, Michael, certainly the Holocaust is the shadow in which much of 20th century Jewish intellectual life operates, and I'm going to assume that it's probably there in Jewish American fiction, so... Uh, Michael and then Danny, I'm going to let you two talk about a novel or two each uh, that explores what Jewish life, God, and other important things look like in that shadow. I'll probably ask follow-up questions as they occur to me, but for now, just go to town.
0: Well, hopefully we won't scoop each other because we didn't call anything beforehand. <laughs> um, the the novel I know that where, where the Holocaust plays the most central role, th- that you could call Jewish America, I mean, Sophie's Choice by William Styron is, is the... As far as far as I know, best Holocaust American novel, but it's not really about Jews for the most part. It's about Polish Catholics. So I'm thinking of uh, Wallant's um, Edward Wallant, I believe is his name, Edward Lewis Wallant, uh, The Pawnbroker, which mm. is published in the early '60s and which uh, which demonstrates the degree to which Americans were still unfamiliar with what happened in the uh, in the Holocaust because it, it is a plot point in this novel that you that you're supposed to be in the dark about that the pawn, the titular pawnbroker who was a concentration camp survivor has this mysterious tattoo on his arm and I mean reading it now you read it and you think oh he's a Holocaust survivor he's a you know he's a European Jewish immigrant into New York City in the late 50s and, and he has he has a tattoo so of course he, he was in a concentration camp but at, at the time Uh, you don't really you weren't really supposed to know apparently and you know it's the it's the story of this this man who comes and starts a pawnbroking business in new york city and it it's struggling for survival and he he takes on this i believe he's puerto rican he may be african-american um assistant and and it's it's an extended meditation on suffering and guilt and Jewish identity and what these things look like—not just in the shadow of the Holocaust, but in, in in the immigrant experience. What what it means to be a suffering Jewish pawnbroker in in Harlem, as opposed to a suffering Jewish whatever in Europe.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Have you read that book, Danny? I have not. It's good. You know, I I don't think it's I don't think it's one of the the best. Of the Jewish American novels But it's very interesting And it's moving And they made a uh, weird movie Out of it Starring Rod Steiger
2: I, 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 That rings a bell now Actually okay you know, the, the plot actually Reminds me a lot of The Assistant By it Bernard Malamud It is well. very
0: similar To The Assistant Which is a much yeah. better novel But which doesn't really Deal with the Holocaust As far as I can remember
2: Right No I. Um, yeah Malamud was very muted on that yeah, That's a good point
0: so. uh, he, he talks much more about Because um, What's his name Bober He's yeah. a is a Russian immigrant, so he wouldn't have he wouldn't have gone to the the Holocaust itself. But he talks he talks about the Russian government's treatment of Jews, which you know isn't much better, mm-hmm. frankly.
2: Right, and well, that comes up again in the Fixer, right? And so, yeah. Um, sorry, uh, are you handing off
0: to me again? I'm handing off to you again. You okay. got <laughs> to get better. Record, yeah, listeners, Danny. Uh, Danny
1: is a Cleveland
2: Browns fan, so.
0: I... <laughs>
1: I'll fumbling just that
2: one there <laughs> fumbling is my dna yes um uh, no okay I, that's a great point and i think that the the slowness with which this topic gets taken up is really important uh it gets taken up novelist artistically uh you think of even sort of like someone who later will have a lot to say about it like Saul bellow i just stay with him um very early on it really has sort of um, I mean, later on, he has, has the book uh, Mr. Samler's Planet. And, and Mr. Samler is, of course, a Holocaust survivor. And this is like a very important novel uh, about this subject. But early in his career, there's this uh, I think it's his second novel, The Victim. And in that book, there is only just kind of like a very brief few hints about the Holocaust as this sort of almost distant backstory that doesn't have anything tangibly to do with what's going on in this current incident but but it's it's so like it, reading it backwards of course it's hard to not see everything as springing forth from this kind of um, this like huge event of the mid twentieth century um and that book is about a, a a some sort of businessman in New York City who is just a very kind of normal um person who thinks of himself as an american and and uh starts becoming. Um, under the attack of uh, uh, someone named Albi who is a uh, uh, an anti-Semite, and, and they sort of ruin each other's lives in some ways, and so the, begs the question, who is the victim actually going on? But there's sort of little, little hints about um, the Holocaust that uh, are very subtle, and if you weren't looking for them, you wouldn't notice them. Um, and so that's sort of, uh, again, an early novel um, that is still not knowing what to do with that. So Uh, What I would like to do, my other novel that I would talk about was flash forward um, uh, many decades to a very recent novel by Michael Chabon, uh, The Yiddish Policeman's Union, uh, which is this uh, sort of postmodern kind of detective story uh, in which there's sort of an uh, alternate reality in which the Holocaust never really happened, and instead all the world's Jews have been uh, located. and, And Israel was actually founded... But failed uh, almost immediately as a state, and so all the Jews were sort of uh, dislocated again to Sitka, Alaska, where they're sort of called <laughs> the the frozen chosen is sort of the uh, what they call them. And so um, it's a, a very kind of funny book. It's very harrowing, and uh, it's very kind of like a big conspiracy novel. Sort of, there's a lot of uh, uh, like events all converging, and it can be very confusing. Um, but it fits the mold of a Jewish American novel in every way. You have religious uh, meditations about this Hasidic community or also the gangsters of the novel. They're sort of the bad guys. Uh, You have um, like a lot of play with language and you have a lot of play with kind of the idea of diaspora, which is another issue that we haven't talked about in terms of uh, the Jewish American novel. But underlying this is sort of um, uh, this notion of what the world looks like in the Face of the Holocaust for the Jews, and so here you have in a very kind of postmodern moment uh, a young writer who's much more removed from the moment and has grown up with it. I mean, this is driving the Jewish American experience in many ways. This is sort of the central event of that experience, and so here's a here's a young writer who um, is sort of re- reimagining it, uh, and and so sort of almost in its absence. Uh, in his novel, at least, uh, meditating on it as if it was the most important thing, and so that, that's a very interesting book that uh, comes much later than than those sort of immediate post Holocaust years.
0: Are the Cohen hmm. brothers still going to make a movie out of that? I, I I knew they were attached to it for a while.
2: I the last I'd heard, they were, I, and it, which seems so perfect that it it almost like. I, I I feel like – I don't know what what to think about. I feel like their best work is taking things that you wouldn't normally think of them doing and doing something interesting with it. But this <laughs> seems like it was almost written for the Coen brothers. So it would be interesting to see what they would do with that. Hmm. And, of course, it would make perfect sense. Their recent movie, A Serious Man, uh, was uh, around the same time probably that the U.S. Policeman Union came out, um, a very um, – holocaust like as this sort of dark center to that movie here you have a, a well-assimilated suburban jewish community in this uh in minnesota in this minnesota town uh and uh like at the center of this is this kind of lurking fear that there's another holocaust on its way and it's just a matter of time and so it's a uh, um in many ways perfect material for them
0: danny would you would you agree with me if i say that the 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 big impact of the holocaust on jewish american fiction is making suffering the the center of it
2: um, hmm <laughs> that's a really big question i I will certainly say that the idea it cements that i i think that you can probably see it before that if you look even uh outside of the jewish american spectrum looking back to um uh, Isaac Babel, uh, those, uh, those Russian stories, uh, where you have these little Russian, these little communities that are persecuted by, uh, like the Russian army, um, the red army. These are, uh, almost like predicting in some ways the Holocaust. And of course you can't think of Jewish fiction in general without Kafka who predates the Holocaust by, by decades. And, and so I, I feel like the notion of suffering. I think that the story of Job is is sort of central to Jewish fiction both before and after the Holocaust. And and I think that um, it's the Holocaust is such a a profound um, um, instantiation of suffering that it can't help but almost claim that topic as almost like usurp that that top that broader topic of suffering and located almost entirely within this one event if that makes any sense what I'm trying to say there yeah um,
0: I didn't think about so many of them being of Russian heritage because I mean who loves suffering more than a Russian novelist right
2: <laughs> 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 exactly right right and all the the immigrant narratives uh, there's a great One of the great sort of immigrant narratives in American Jewish literature is The Rise of David Levinsky by Abraham Kahan. And uh, it's a uh, a, a full of sort of the notion of suffering. Another person coming from Russia to America. but um, And so, yeah, it's – and Anzia Yuzierska is another sort of great immigrant writer. And uh, you have – that notion exists before the Holocaust. The Holocaust gives it some sort of um, form, I think, Mm -hmm. that's a unique one. And in many ways, it's important to note Holocaust studies intersects with Jewish studies in many ways, obviously. But I, do, I am not part of – I mean that's a, a whole body of work that requires its own study, right? Right, it's sort right. Of,
1: yeah. Oh, sure, sure.
2: Which again is sort
1: of the modus operandi of the show.
0: Maybe it's safer to say the Holocaust makes Jewish suffering unignorable for the rest of us.
2: Ah, that's a good point. It's a good way of saying it.
1: Well, Danny, you mentioned uh, diaspora earlier. Uh, I want to pursue that a little bit. Uh, certainly, with any minority ethnicity fiction, the tensions between being both a citizen of the large, powerful political entity, but then also a member of the minority, are going to come into play. So, once again, I'm going to let you guys kind of pitch it back and forth here because, I mean, I'm I'm fascinated by this conversation you're having. So, Danny, uh, you hit lead off this time. Tell us about a strong example or two of a Jewish American novel that explores that kind of tension of being a diaspora Jew specifically. Uh, once again, I'm, I'm going to stand back, let you two take this segment.
2: Well, I've uh, stole some of my thunder, thunder, loan thunder already with the, the victim. I think that's a good example of someone who seemingly has worked out an American identity that is both stable and, and happy uh, and, and is sort of challenged by the, by circumstances which caused his own Jewishness to come to the surface, and, and I think that that's a that's a an interesting early um, Bellow novel that doesn't really kind of, it's not consi- before Augie March. It's sort of like you have sort of a different Bellow, right? But um, once Augie March comes out, you have this sort of incredible voice that just emerges out of either. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I haven't
0: I haven't read The Victim, but Dangling Man, which is his first book, is the the first chapter of my dissertation, and I mean, you're right, that is. It does not feel like Saul Bellow. It feels like Sartre yes. or, uh, or uh, Dostoevsky.
2: Yes. They're very much uh, invested in this kind of just sort of uh, good good novel, like good fiction sort of form, right? And, and then later on, he discovers the sort of explosive voice that makes Saul Bellow Saul Bellow, I think. But um, the I would stick with Philip Roth, though. I think uh, now the larger community, the political identi- entity that you're talking about in much of Roth is uh, the world of arts and letters? Um, and And so mm. you have um, in this caricature of himself called Nathan Zuckerman, uh, Philip Roth has found this sort of avatar to explore his own reception by the Jewish American community with the vast popularity and incredible sort of controversial nature of his fiction, uh, particularly with Portnoy's complaint. but all going all the way back to good by Columbus, he found himself at odds with many people in his community he was writing these stories drawing on the the kind of memories of his admittedly happy childhood Um, but he sort of like the woody allen sort of schlemiel he sort of makes uh makes that part of his um fiction making process and and he draws a lot of kind of humorous comical attention to this um group in the wake of the holocaust they're very sensitive about this for (laughs) for some uh, reason (laughs) right yeah and so he (laughs) he becomes attacked and irving howe famously sort of attacked him after portnoy's complaint um for um what that book was about and for those of you don't know it's an incredibly like funny and yet utterly filthy book that um is very kind of um chancy and yet and also not
0: not the place to start with roth by the way if you haven't read roth do not start with portnoy's complaint
2: no, no, no. I would start with Goodbye Columbus. I would but, too. Um, Yeah, but it's uh, right now. But it's actually now. It's a kind of beloved in the Jewish American community. But in the uh, uh, when it first came out, it was quite controversial. Roth became this big star, and and then people start attacking him, and he has you know issues with his family and communities, and so he invents Nathan Zuckerman, uh, who to sort of fictionalize the post-Portnoy complaint um, experience that he had. And in one of the Zuckerman books, he actually creates a character based on Irving Howe, who he sort of like re-attacks back after the Portnoy complaint. He calls him Milton Apple, I think, and he sort of <laughs> invents him nice. as, a, as a pornographer who is – I won't <laughs> tell you the name of the magazine, but it's actually a hilarious name. Um, a, a hilarious sort of uh, idea of the the fiction – Both drawing on the energies of being an outsider and this sort of from this immigrant um, community, and and yet fighting against that um, at the same time, and that's what makes these books all sparkle. And and those the Zuckerman character is, you know, all the way till like the late two thousands is he um, um, used that character. The
0: Mm. only one I read with him was uh, Human Stain. Mm-hmm. which is one of my very favorite novels in which we should yeah. not talk about in any detail because it has one of the greatest plot twists in American literature. And I don't want to give that away to anybody. Right. No,
2: it's one of my favorite novels too, but that Zuckerman is a little different because that's the, um, the older sort of impotent Zick- Zuckerman, the younger Zuckerman of the, um, uh, there's another trilogy called the Zuckerman bound trilogy, uh, starting with the ghost writer. And then, uh, the anatomy lesson is one of those, um, that's the one with the Irving Howe attack. But um, the, the, that Zuckerman is kind of wild and, and, and very kind of sexually voracious. And, and he's sort of the Zuckerman of Portnoy. And, and Portnoy is fictionalized as a book called Karnovsky in that book, in those books. Um, and uh, so after um, the counter life, Zuckerman sort of changes into this, not the actor, but the teller of the stories himself. And so it, it, it's a very kind of uh, um, metafictional move on Roth's part
0: they've still got a few years maybe to give Roth the Nobel Prize but it, they, they need to do it they they, they screwed up on Updike
2: he's um, 80 I know they, they
0: need to stop punishing American writers for the actions of our presidents
2: <laughs> well yeah and, and stop marginalizing their, themselves as well I mean they keep choosing writers who you have to look up on Wikipedia to, to hope that you can find anything about because you've never heard of them and so yeah I agree. And in fact, if one of their priorities is this is soapbox, excuse me, um, the sort of uh, encouragement of world literature, Roth fits that because in the 70s and 80s, he was instrumental in the discovery and the kind of translation of Eastern European writers into English. And so he's like very involved in world literature at large. He isn't just an American novelist. So (laughs) end of soapbox.
0: I was going to talk about Roth, too. I was going to talk about Goodbye Columbus, which seems to me one of the great novels of assimilation. Oh, yeah. Because oh, yeah. It, it's so much bound up in class rather than race, and it it, mm-hmm. it, it makes that case, mm-hmm. I think, um, very well and very effectively. And I, the only thing I'd read by Roth before coming to that is Portnoy, and I was surprised how gentle and sweet Goodbye Columbus is.
2: Right. And, and Roth is another one that had a this kind of, Voice change, like from Goodbye Columbus all the way through uh, when she uh, when she was good, which I think is the novel that precedes Portnoy. There's a very kind of Jamesian kind of structured novels, right? And then uh, Portnoy's Complaint is this explosion, and then the finding of his own voice, and, and uh, in the same way that Bellow did after two novels. So
0: the other thing I was going to talk about is not a novel at all, but a film, which is uh, Woody Allen Zelig. Mm. One of his uh, films from the early '80s, probably not one of his more famous ones, but it's it's a great meditation on assimilation. Mm-hmm. Um, not specifically Jewish, but when you're when Woody Allen is your main character, it's hard not to be pretty Jewish. <laughs> um, so it, it's this faux documentary where the the main character Zelig is a he t- he almost involuntarily takes on the qualities of anybody he's next to. Yes. Because he's he's so insecure in his own existence, and there's a, there's a metaphor there if you care to search it down, for the Jewish American experience, especially that of Allen's generation, which is Philip Roth's generation, mm-hmm. which is a, a generation that had largely uh, stopped seeing it as a matter of life and death to hold on to the old traditions. You know, there's a there's a trajectory, and I think we talked about this in the generations episode. There's a trajectory with immigrant generations whereby the first generations. Um, hold on to the past the second generations kind of fight with it and by the time you get to the third it's not as important to them anymore mm-hmm. but what happens to Zelig is they cure him he stops assimilating and then everybody hates him
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's funny that movie also is like a documentary style uh-huh. Irving Howe and Saul Bellow are like interviewees yep. in, the, in this movie too so it's, it's, it's actually quite, quite funny I forgot uh, Irving Howe him. was in it yeah Yeah, who's like can't deliver the lines, he's like smiling the whole time he's talking. So, yeah,
0: Bellow plays (laughs) pretty straight, pretty straight.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, and that uh, the idea of the generations coming back here, if I may, Nathan, go ahead. Um, um, it's interesting how after Roth's generation, um, uh, you have these younger writers like Shabon, like uh, Jonathan Safran Foer, uh, uh, Allegra Goodman. I mean, you have these these great. Uh yes, yeah, Steingart, you have um uh, uh Rebecca Goldstein, you have these like uh recent more recent like contemporary novelists who they, many people call them the new, the new Yiddishists. And and so you have these people really invested in rediscovering um this heritage that they feel has I've been a bit lost to them. And I think that's what kinda of gives the the Yiddish Policeman's Union its energy. It's certainly what gives everything is illuminated its energy, um by Jonathan Saffron Foer which I actually think works better as a movie than than as a book my personal my personal opinion but um um so yeah I think it's an interesting kind of turn of events when you have uh the younger generation seeking out something they felt is lost to them through these um older artists
0: which which is only possible once assimilation is a fait accompli right I mean it's it's it, it, this can only happen because because Roth rebelled and then turned his back on the old ways as it were
2: yeah yeah mm-hmm. And yet they all love Roth. I mean, yeah, yeah, sure.
0: Yeah. Well, the other ones are, you know, fourth and fifth generation Americans. Steingart may not be the best one to put in that group Mm. because I believe his parents are from Russia.
2: Yeah, yeah, he's sort of a recent immigrant, yeah. Hmm. Well, Michael,
1: you all are are already starting to point towards more recent texts, so. Uh, I'll go ahead and pitch this to you, and then once again, I'll just kind of listen to you and Danny and kind of get educated here. Uh, but, Michael, is there a terminus to Jewish-American fiction, or do writers like Dr. O and Roth and such still get treated in literary critical circles as an intelligible continuity of what got started in those earlier post-war decades? Either way, how have globalization and the postmodern turns of the late 20th century and the early 21st century Affected this constellation of writers and books.
0: There's not really a simple answer to that question, is there?
1: And, is there ever? Uh,
0: <laughs> and 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 Danny, I think really really got to it by talking about this new movement of people trying to rediscover the past. Um, a- as you mentioned, I mean, Doctorow, his his writing is not recognizably Jewish. He he, you would be much more apt to identify him as a postmodernist than as a Jewish American fiction writer. Not saying. Of course, that you couldn't be both, but that if you had to pick one of those groups for Dr. Row, it's going to be post-modernity.
2: Right. Um, well, the one exception might be the Book of Daniel, which is so much about the Rosenberg trial that it, it, its Jewishness is sort of um, undeniable, but that's kind of a one-off for him. So
0: so, so I, think, I think the answer is, yeah, some people very consciously pitch themselves as part of that tradition, and some people don't care so much about it, which is a luxury you get when you're a... X minority mm-hmm right although I, I guess even if you're not an X minority I mean african-american lit you see something of the same thing I think there are there are novels by Colson Whitehead for example that are not especially african-american novels even though he is himself african-american so maybe it maybe it's just something you can do once you're Literary tradition is established where you can you can choose to step in or out of it at will, which is kind of what Roth does, right? I mean, sometimes sometimes Roth's fiction is is very much connected to that tradition, and sometimes um, it's connected to a different tradition entirely. Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely, yeah. Uh,
1: that that and, reminds me, Michael, of a, a story I heard. A friend of mine went to a a panel discussion where Spike Lee was one of the panelists, and someone in the audience asked him, you know, uh, do you ever think you will Step away from making black films, and his uh, response was, How come they never ask uh, French directors when they're going to stop making French films? <laughs> <laughs> but,
0: I mean, but the truth is, Spike Lee doesn't always make quote unquote black films, right? Inside right, Man right. which was his biggest hit in years, doesn't really have much to say about race as far as I can remember it. Mm hmm. So, you know, again, maybe that's just a luxury you get when your tradition is sufficiently established. It's difficult to imagine Saul Bellow saying, well, I'm not going to write Jewish novels anymore. Although he did. I mean, Henderson the Rain King is not a Jewish novel in any any real sense. I mean, the, the main mm-hmm. character is a Gentile who rediscovers African religion, for crying out loud. <laughs> and yet you read it and it still, it still feels Jewish because Bellow's voice is so heavily informed by Yiddish. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, and I think that this question can't be unbound from uh, the the first question you asked about what is Jewish literature, and and I think that there is this sort of nexus of things that rise up in certain historical moments, so early in the century, Jewish literature was, Irving Howe I think was correct, defined by its relationship to the immigrant experience, and so once that is established, though, Jewish fiction doesn't go away because Jews don't go away, right? And so, like, there just mm-hmm. there are different sort of um, uh, social realities that are feeding this fiction with material for art, right? And so, I think that that is one of those uh, those questions that's those two questions I think are related, and, and I think that um, it's absolutely still an intelligible continuity, as you say, um, from uh, those that those early immigrant narratives all the way through. Um, well it's stick with everything is illuminated it's sort of like the inverse of that you have uh, a well established american um writer in that book who's going back to the uh, the shtetl where his uh, his family was uh, massacred and and so this is a uh, it's almost the opposite of the immigrant narrative so mm-hmm.
0: and then, i mean and then you have somebody like steingart whose main con- main connection to Judaism seems to be the films of Woody Allen
2: mhm
0: you know, he he he's adopted a completely different voice. He he doesn't seem so much in the bello tradition. He's you know, it's it's this self-deprecating uh, psychoanalysis, uh, you know, humor tradition right. that, that is that is, I mean, equally Jewish, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Exactly, and uh, on another level there's sort of a a different, a a Southern writer named Steve Stern, who's Jewish and he's very much out of the kind of Cynthia Ozick sort of school of magical realism. Um, and, and, but his like fiction comes out of this sort of Southern um, Jewishness. And so it's very kind of idiosyncratic in that way, because it's not like a broadly, you don't think of that as a thing, right? But, um, but it is. And so, yeah, it's, it's whatever the kind of individual cultural moment that Jewishness is engaging in um, gives rise to a unique um, expression of Jewish fiction. I think.
1: Hmm. All right. Yeah. And I'm at, you know, I yeah. I guess the reason that I wanted to ask that, guys, is because you know it's one of those things where you really don't hear anymore about you know, for instance, you know, Scots Irish literature in America anymore. You know, if if someone is from that heritage, generally they associate them with a an American region. You know, Appalachian literature. Uh, whereas, I mean, what you guys seem to be saying is that there still is something intelligibly ethnic about the way that people talk about Jewish fiction. I mean, is that fair, or am I am I mischaracterizing
2: that? Yeah, no, and it's ultimately a function of diaspora, I think. And so, yeah, this okay. is Jew, Jewish is by its nature portable, um, by uh-huh. by because it had to be right. And so, I think that portability um, has found its way. And into fiction, which makes it an essential category, completely undefinable. Hmm. Hmm.
1: Well, Danny, I'm I'm going to turn theological here at the end, uh, as we tend to do on this show. Uh, certainly, the the history of Christian anti-Semitism is something that you know Christians should have been grappling with before Auschwitz, and can't help grappling with after Auschwitz. Uh, what moral resources, if any? do the novels that you two have been discussing today offer to 21st century Christians trying to love their Jewish neighbors or if you prefer Danny is that entirely the wrong question to be asking about these
2: texts <laughs> well I, i'll just pretend like there it isn't wrought with difficulty and just answer the question um, <laughs> if that's okay um it, it's um uh, what wrought from difficulty it's a uh, I, I, I I'll give you an example of a, of a writer, Bernard Malamud, who's a um, uh, I, one of the kind of great Jewish American writers who, in the '70s, you would have read in college in the way that you read Hemingway and Faulkner now. But um, for some reason, he's sort of fallen out of favor, and uh, and, and it's sad. I a couple of years ago went to the American Literature Association, and they had you know these author-based societies give panels, and I went to the Malamud panel. And I was the only member of the audience in that panel. And uh, in fact, one of the panelists didn't even show up. It was, it was so sad. It was just a, <laughs> a sad statement on, on, on Malamud because he's such a great writer. Um, and I make my students read him every semester and, and they always love him. So um, I will use this as yet another opportunity to to pitch his his work. And, and we talked about er, a little bit earlier about the role of suffering um, in a book like The Assistant for, for Malamud. Um, and he kind of famously said um, the phrase, all men are Jews. And this is uh, one reason that he may be out of favor is that, uh, many people kind of find him, many people in the Jewish community would find his his work to be a bit um, um, not dedicated to Jewishness so much as it is dedicated to just a broader sense of humanity. And so, um, um, but this notion of all men are Jews Meaning that like the Jewish experience becomes metaphorical for like we're all of our experiences. And so I think um, on one level, I see the difficulty in that because it's also a very specific um, experience that deserves its own kind of attention. So I, I understand the, the problem with that statement. And in fact, Roth himself inverted it in a rather cruel um, review, of um, like summation of, of Malamud, like in Roth's middle, middle of his career. Um, he inverted it by calling it, all Jews are men. Thus. Portnoy's complaint. And and uh mm-hmm. and so um but uh I, I think that Malamud's fiction is a fiction where you sort of can get in touch with a specific community's um plight and, and the kind of social uh and economic uh uh problems that this community has had. And in that way, because he's so I think he's particularly good at reaching out to non-Jewish readers um, using the Jewish um, um, like experience. And so I think that that would be a place where a, a Christian reader um, looking for a way to be sympathetic for some reason um, <laughs> to Jewish people. I don't know why they would need novels to do that, but um, if they do, uh, I think Malamud would be uh, a place for, to start because you do get this very kind of heartbreaking sense of not only um, like suffering, But also, there's a certain like beauty in it, and I think that he's particularly good at um, at at translating these troubling, some of the more troubling experiences in the Jewish American um, in Jewish American history for non-Jewish readers. So I I would. uh, just punt on all the kind of um larger problems inherent in the statement and and just kind of ask you to read some of the short short fiction of bernard malamud um most of it actually it's very good and uh the assistant is a is a a great novel that everyone really should read
1: michael what would you add
0: i'm not sure i would add anything i it's (laughs) uh, yeah i mean i i guess i would uh I would say that the novels can help us to understand the Jewish-American experience if there is such a thing. I mean, part of not being an anti-Semite is not assuming there's one Jewish-American experience. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe it'd be better to say the novels can help us understand Jewish-American experiences over the years. And, you know, one of the things novels do is help us build sympathy.
2: Mm -hmm. In a broad Mm -hmm. sense, right? And so, yeah, I feel like the answer to the question is the, the same is, is why I read about anybody, you know, I mean, why read it all? So, yeah. Um, right.
0: Right. I well, that, I mean,
1: uh, just to go to a realm where I have a little bit more background, I mean, you know, one of the things about teaching and reading, uh, 20th century Japanese novels, uh, is that, you know, it's a very, very different mindset. And, you know, it's sort of by, by crawling inside of that mindset and living with it rather than experiencing it as somewhere over there, uh, I mean, honestly, I I think it does, I mean, increase our capacity to imagine the world differently from the way that we normally do. I mean, is that, would you guys regard that as something that's just inherent in all fiction or, I mean, would you say that ethnic fiction or, you know, uh, Jewish f- fiction in particular does does that in particular ways that other fiction doesn't?
0: It's inherent in all fiction. Okay. But... You get that more when you read things from cultures and viewpoints that are much different than your own, and Jewish American fiction is a viewpoint that talks about things that American Christians are used to talking about in ways we're not used to talking about it, perhaps. And so, in in that sense, it can make the familiar unfamiliar, which is one mm-hmm. of the great advantages of literature.
2: Uh, that's a great answer. No, I, I completely like would second that. I think it's it's a great way to put it. Oh you guys are being so agreeable today. <laughs> <laughs> no no that was,
0: that's a great way to put it.
2: And and I think the there's one of the ways that it's made unfamiliar is because it brings this linguistic tradition uh along with these somewhat more kind of recognizable religious traditions we saw you know Christians should have had read some of the Old Testament, right? And so, um, uh, there, there's some of uh, uh, like a little bit for everybody, right there. So, no, I completely agree. The,
0: the assistant in particular is is so Yiddish. Like even the even the narrator talks in a Yiddish accent. Yes. My wife yeah. and I read that book out loud to each other over the summer, and uh, she started using Yiddish sentence patterns <laughs> in her normal speech. Like it gets it gets into your head.
2: Yes. Yes, it does. Your head,
0: it gets into. (laughs) I I had a feeling
1: that was around the corner.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, thanks,
1: guys, for a good conversation. Uh, You know, as I said at the outset, I didn't have a whole lot to contribute, but I'm Uh, glad that I. This is the
0: quietest I've ever uh, seen you on the podcast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm I'm glad I got to listen in because I I got educated today. Uh, Michael, uh, what are we talking about next week?
0: It is the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. I think that was last week or two weeks ago as you hear this. So naturally, instead of talking about that speech, we're going to talk about his longer and uh, I think more rhetorically rich letter from a Birmingham jail.
1: All right. Very good. Uh Uh, In the meantime, while you're waiting for that episode, listeners, be sure to catch us on Facebook. Let us know what you think. Uh, Go to iTunes, subscribe to the podcast. Give us some stars there. Uh, some people have written some very nice things there. If you're inclined to say something nice, write something nice. If you don't have anything nice to say, we'll write that too. We like it too. Uh, also, I, I just want to nod for a moment to the fact that we are now over 250 thumbs up on Facebook, which just thrills me. It means that there are a lot of you out there. Uh, so keep listening. Keep writing in. Find us on the web at christianhumanist.org. Email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com and until you hear from us again good listeners, this is Nathan Gilmore on behalf of Danny Anderson and Michael Farmer saying let your sins be strong let your sins be strong let your faith be stronger